You've entered the realm of the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Yetney. Well, we finally made it. The Paracast, the first episode. I'm Gene Steinberg. We are here. Yes, we are, I think. Virtually. We're virtually here. I'm here and David is here, but we're not together. Well, we're together virtually. Of course. In cyberspace. That's right. But that's more complicated than we want to say. We could say we're separated by a dimensional doorway. (laughs) Uh, Time and space. Yes, we're actually separated by time and space, Gene. A dimensional doorway? Do you have a doorway working that I don't know about? This big circular thing. Oh, you at the Stargate. Look, you got to get over the Stargate thing. What Stargate? I mean, uh, What's a right, Stargate? Right, right. I never because, heard of a Stargate. Well, what about the Time Tunnel from the 60s? It was a it was a much better show. I don't know. I love that show. What, the Time Tunnel from the 60s? Oh, that was great. I mean, or the... What was that? Ep- well, let's not get into the Star Trek thing. So here we are at the Paracast, our exploration of topics known, unknown, and otherwise. The and- Paranormal. That's right. Probably otherwise to a great extent. But, you know, I started with this thing when I was 11 years old. How did you get into this, Gene, at 11? At 11, what were you doing that led you down this particular path? It's the fault of my late brother. He did it to me. (laughs) Brothers do that to their younger brothers. What did your brother do to you, Gene? Well, he left this book on a coffee table in his apartment. Was this an Eric Von Daniken book? Oh, no, predates Eric von Däniken. So he leaves this book on the coffee table, Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Kehoe. I am sure he meant for me to read it. It wasn't an accident that he left it on that desk. No. Of all the books he could leave, why did he leave that one? I understand this was someone at that point, newly married, a recent pharmacy school graduate, you know, involved in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. Why would he leave that book? which many felt would be unscientific. Major Donald Kehoe was a f- retired Marine Corps major. He was actually a major during the 1920s. He flew balloons, believe it or not. And somehow, he was an aviation writer. He started reading in the late 40s about reports of what they called flying saucers then, not so much UFOs. This was his second book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space. And obviously, by the title, you knew what it was all about. And it's not I, very subtle. <laughs> not very subtle at all. Not a very subtle title. He laid his cards on the table, and he never deviated for the rest of his life. But mm-hmm. I was hooked. Then and there, I was hooked. And as soon as I read that book, I went to the library and looked for other books by the same author, other books by different authors. Within a couple of years, I had probably read 20 or 30 of these books. And I believed that the space people were going to land on Capitol Hill any day now. Of course, that was a very naive point of view. (laughs) And over the intervening so many years, it changed considerably. But that's how I got started. It's his fault. It's his fault. Now, of course, the title of that book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space was already sort of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was already coming to this conclusion right there in the title. So, I mean, your beginning was, in a way, it was an indoctrination. I think so, yes. Right? I mean, that's, and and I think for a lot of people who might be listening to the show that they probably went through a similar thing um, where, you know, they, they came into this, I mean, you know, 
there's a little age difference between us, Gene, but, you know, from my generation, which is like, I think, just one generation behind you, you know, there were these movies. There was the E.T. and the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, I mean, you know, the, the uh, going back another generation, I guess there was things like, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still or Invaders from Mars. So in the public eye and, and sort of the mass consciousness, there was already this kind of instilled set of beliefs, if you would, about this stuff that had... Maybe nothing to do with people actually seeing UFOs. Or, and again, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that the Paracast is going to have topics in, involving UFOs, but other stuff as well. There's a bunch of weird stuff that we don't really seem to have a handle on. And, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk about some of the stuff to the point where it's really almost been marginalized. I mean, it's really weird. Like, you know, you talk about Sasquatch, Bigfoot, and people just start to laugh and go, oh, yeah, whatever, that video was a fake. Well, I mean, there's been consistently over years these reports of weird stuff out of certain parts of the world, like the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, I just wonder, why does this stuff keep staying somehow in the stream of consciousness of our society is it a desire to have the unknown be there so that we're not so sure about ourselves i mean we live in a time when science tries to explain so much that it's almost like mysticism has become a word in our culture that has really been marginalized or co-opted by the religious world i mean what do you think about that well, let's take a look at what you were alluding to here, which is a collective unconscious, which is a concept from Dr. Carl Jung, the late Swiss psychiatrist. He wrote a book about flying saucers, calling it a modern myth. Right. And he was saying that we all have this vision of extraterrestrials coming down, and it was all part of our massed or collective unconscious. That was his right. point of view at that time. That goes back to probably the late 50s or early 60s. That was mm-hmm. his point of view. It got really complicated in the days of Close Encounters because, as you probably know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was based on a book, a fact book, by Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer, who actually worked for the Air Force as their key scientific investigator of reports of UFOs. Now, I knew Dr. Hynek in his final years, and he had come to a point of view where UFOs and some of these other mysteries were not necessarily dissimilar. You didn't have the world of, say, UFOs here, Sasquatch here, poltergeist phenomena here. There was a relationship, and a lot of people... And this is why the whole subject of UFOs gets so complicated. A lot of people around that era, and it's changed since then, but this is the 19, late 60s, 70s, early 80s, believe that if you looked in an area where a lot of people saw UFOs, you would find reports of strange creatures and poltergeist activities and other things in greater numbers. And that's also something that one of our guests today, Brad Steiger, is going to be talking about. It's like a predisposition almost to expanding one's belief system. It's like once you're in the middle of the ocean, you're going to get wet, so just bring it on. And before we progress (laughs) with the Paracast, I want you to think about this. 
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story. And the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is the Paracast. I'm Gene Steinberg with David Bietney, and we share the duties trying to explore things that even the X-Files never heard about because we're dealing with facts, not science fantasy or science fiction here. So well, tell we me, David. dealing with a little bit of science fiction. Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> but tell me, David, how did you get interested in this? How is somebody who is quite skilled at creative pursuits such as creating special effects for movies and doing artwork and working on music videos and such how do you become someone interested in anything like this how were you corrupted well it's not that not about corruption and actually so the fun part of this show gene is that i'm only going to talk about certain aspects of my interest in this because you see the thing is that uh, you've sort of identified as the, the quote-unquote believer, and I think that's very interesting, and I think that's fine. I'm going to take the stance in this show of, of being a bit more of a skeptic, which is kind of ironic given my background, and, given, uh, and I'll just give you a clue there in that I ended up spending the formative part of my teenage years down in Caracas, Venezuela, which, interestingly enough, in UFO lore is the site of a tremendous amount of UFO activity. And it's not just about UFOs, though. I mean, the, the paranormal, you know, in, in, if you go into South America, things like Santeria are still a very powerful force. And Santeria is kind of an offshoot of, it's, it's kind of a weird blending of voodoo aesthetics and, uh, you know, sort of ultra-right Christian beliefs and, some other weird paranormal stuff tossed into the soup. My father, who was this fascinating character and, and who had tons of friends in Caracas, he had grown up in Venezuela. Um, it's kind of another weird story we won't get into here. An Eastern European Jew who ends up in Venezuela because of the Second World War and is this bizarre combination of Eastern European Jew and Latin, Latino macho. It's very weird stuff with my dad. But we ended up moving to Venezuela in the mid-70s. And um, my father, the first job he had down there, he was the director of a film newsreel. My father, when we moved to Venezuela, because of his connections and his background, he was hired to be the director of this weekly newsreel thing. 
And one of the things that this newsreel dealt with were some paranormal things that were happening in Venezuela that he had documented. And I remember being 11 years old, seeing some of this footage of one of these psychic surgeon guys and pointing out to my father that this footage of this guy, you know, pulling, you know, some a tumor out of somebody's body. I said, hey, look at that, Dad. He's got the thing in his hand already. And I pointed out to my dad that this, you know, psychic surgeon guy was literally, you know, palming a chicken liver. At that time, I remember thinking, okay, that's, you know, this is, there's something going on here, but, you know, there's human frailty around this as well. And pointing this out to my dad, who then turned around and did a piece on Arigo. And that's when my interest in paranormal stuff really started to spark in, 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 into an intense heat. Was and, and Hopefully we'll talk about this on the show, Gene. This, this guy who down in Brazil was apparently, and I mean I say apparently because I wasn't there, but he was channeling the spirit of this dead German doctor and was doing this kind of psychic surgery, but in a ver- apparently a very real way, a very well-documented way. There's actually a book that uh, that was produced in this country called Arigo, the, the, um, I think it was called The Surgeon of the Rusty Knife. And people had, there had been a group that had gone down from the New York Times and from Columbia Medical here in New York City, and they went down and literally saw this guy doing this stuff and came back with evidence that there was something very weird going on there. Let's hold that thought, David, because I think people would like to hear what we've got in store for them on this particular episode, our introductory episode, because you raised a number of different subjects here. And we have a fellow who's coming up first on the show who has looked for many years at UFOs and psychic phenomena in general as a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's co-author of a book called Shockingly Close to the Truth. It's published by Prometheus, which is the publishing arm of the Skeptical Inquirer. But he doesn't take a 100% skeptical approach. He does believe in some of this stuff, but he also approaches it with a great percentage of humor, a great amount of irony. His name is James W. Mosley, and he has this small newsletter called Saucer Smear. The Schmear. It's not a schmear on a bagel. It's Saucer <laughs> Smear. And if you're wondering what that's about, you're going to have to listen to this. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. It's all out of this world. So, Jim Mosley, tell me how 50 or 51 years ago, a young man with a trust fund decides he's looking for something to do and he gets involved in looking for UFOs. Well, uh, actually, it was 52 years ago that I started my magazine, which was then called Saucer News and is now called Saucer Smear. My interest in the subject predated that by a few years. I got interested in UFOs about 1948 when I heard of the Thomas Mantell case 
And that, as we may or may not know, is the case in which a uh, Kentucky National Guard pilot, if I recall correctly, uh, was uh, chasing an unidentified uh, balloon type of thing at a high altitude for those days. And uh, he, to make a long story short, uh, went to an altitude above 15,000 feet and uh, without oxygen. And uh, in the end of this incident, uh, his plane crashed and his body was badly mutilated and it was assumed by some uh, that he had been zapped uh, by a flying saucer. Other people thought that he just blacked out because of lack of oxygen, but whatever. And that, for me, was the beginning of the saucer era. Uh, there were incidents before that, uh, but uh, that was what got me started. And then 1952, the uh, flap over Washington, D.C., and the fact that uh, hundreds of cases were reported to the Air Force in the month of July of that year, it got me going further, and then finally in 53, I got interested enough to the point that I started doing research and uh, eventually uh, started publishing a saucer magazine. At any point, Jim, did you actually believe these things were real? Was it a hobby or what, or both? Well, of course it was a hobby, but I certainly thought there was something real behind it. In those days, I assumed that if it was real, it was from another planet, that's the simplistic view that many people have today. I, at this point, don't think that that's the answer. I think it's far more complicated than that, and I can't really tell you precisely what UFOs are. I think there is a real mystery, and uh, it's going to continue on for quite a while for various reasons. Uh, it could be entities from another planet, but I think it's far more likely that it's some part of our own environment, whether it's in another dimension or what, I certainly can't tell you, but it's something innate to the Earth. Uh, we observe it here, and uh, we don't know for sure if it's coming in from somewhere else, but whatever it is, it's uh, uh, fascinating, and I'm still as interested in it as I was then. And that was over 52 years ago. Jim Mosley, yes, who publishes a little newsletter called Saucer Smear. That is correct. And just for those who are wondering what that's about, and we're going to tell more about Jim in a moment, but Saucer Smear comes out every few weeks or so, semi-non-scheduled. Is it a serious newsletter, or is it, like the title implies, something that maybe puts the whole thing down? Well, it's neither uh, of those two. What it is is taking a relatively lighthearted view of the things that are going on in the field, it's not skeptical in the sense of uh, Phil Class, who was uh, possibly the most famous UFO skeptic who died recently. I knew him and uh, had a lot of dealings with him, but I was not a skeptic in that sense, and uh, I'm still not. I think something serious is going on, but I think that most people in this UFO field take themselves too seriously and take the whole subject too seriously and go off on tangents that, that cannot be. Uh, justified, and I kind of uh, bring them down to size, perhaps, or uh, make comments which are humorous or not humorous, depending on how you feel about it, and uh, that's pretty much what I do. It's eight pages every five or 
six weeks. Now, Jim, one of the things that you brought up here is kind of bringing people off their tangents, people going off on a tangent of one sort or another. I understand about getting caught up in a belief system. Is that one of the tangents, or are there others? Well, yes, everybody's in some kind of a belief system, but I think uh, that in the UFO field, you have to uh, be very tentative about it. I don't think anybody has proof, final proof of anything, and least of all do I believe that the U.S. government has hidden saucers, hidden aliens, or any proof that they're not uh, showing us. Uh, I suppose they'd be capable of uh, such... Uh, disinformation if uh, they did have that kind of thing, but in my opinion, there isn't anything conclusive that they know about UFOs that the public doesn't know, and so the public blames the government for secrecy, but obviously if this phenomenon wanted to make itself known to all of us, there are so many obvious ways it could do that, and the government couldn't stop it in any way, shape, or form, so I don't think the key to this is government secrecy. I believe that the government would be able to keep anything secret. An organization of that size and that amount of disorganization, it well, would be difficult I mean, for them it, to keep something like that quiet, right? If, if things are being seen in the skies and landing at times and abducting people, it would seem that if the phenomenon wanted to make itself known to us, it could very easily do that. And I can't imagine what the government could do about it if uh, we won't talk anymore these days about a saucer landing on the White House lawn. I think that would be a very poor move on their part. Uh, they'd be blown up uh, before they got near the lawn. But uh, suppose they landed on uh, the uh, campus of MIT and uh, a great number of the professors and other students there uh, were to observe it uh, and photograph it and take all kinds of uh, measurements, so to speak. I don't think there'd be any uh, question after that. But uh, alas, the phenomena doesn't uh, do us that favor. They don't do it. Well, that takes us to the fact of people from other worlds. Do you feel, especially now that we've found so many planets in our galaxy, do you think that there are really life forms out there, or oh, are we dealing with two separate things absolutely here? absolutely overwhelming that uh, in the universe, vast as it obviously is, there must be perhaps millions of planets that have life, and perhaps even intelligent life. But uh, it's no easy jump from that statement to the statement that that intelligent life is visiting us here now. There are so many questions that come up, and the most obvious one is why. Okay, well, I'll ask you that question, but first we have to tell our listeners you've entered the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our guest is Jim Mosley. He's been around the flying saucer or UFO game for well over 50 years. So he is, uh, I guess we'll call him a senior citizen. <laughs> yes, you could do that. A pioneer. A pioneer. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, should... I like that better. Okay, a pioneer in the UFO field, probably one of the few pioneers still left. Now, one of your contemporaries, somebody you ran across and not in not a very favorable way, but somebody a lot of people heard of, Major Donald Kehoe. He wrote a yes. number of books through the years. He insisted that the extraterrestrials were coming tomorrow. Of course, tomorrow became yesterday and the day before and the year before and the decade before. Now, maybe let's go back to this history. Now, we've got a basic perspective of where you stand on this thing. Your encounters with Donald Kehoe were not very friendly. Tell us. Well, I barely knew the man. I was not pleased by his basic attitude and the attitude taken by his organization, NICAP. And that was in the 50s and 60s, a long time ago. But he, uh, most of all of the leading researchers of that time or later time, he blamed the Air Force for not telling us what they knew. He thought the whole solution to the mystery was to force the government to uh, give out uh, their information and uh, let us know the truth, etc. And I thought that approach was very limited and uh, very uh, non-productive simply because uh, they didn't know the answer any more than we do. The Air Force had some kind of information that perhaps you wanted to get to through the federal government. Pardon me? Well, this goes back to the issue of the disorganization of the federal government and the notion that perhaps there are cells working in the government that are designed to keep information from one another. And so well, the question is, I how think, do you find uh, that cell? That, uh, it, it's not uh, far-fetched to think that at different times and for different reasons the government has given out uh, deliberately disinformation about UFOs. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there was a time, perhaps, that they wanted the Russians or whoever to think that we were in touch with intelligent aliens and getting technology from them, and then, of course, that would put us ahead of these other countries and, and give those countries something more to worry about and more reason to fear us. Uh, I don't doubt that they have been less than honest with us, but I don't think that's the key to the whole thing. You said something earlier, Jim, about the potential, the potential terrestrial origins of this phenomenon. I, I, I would like you to expand upon that a little bit. Are you talking about perhaps um, things coming from another part of our history versus another part of the, the galaxy? Well, I, I think the whole thing ties in somehow with the paranormal. And uh, some people who call themselves nuts and bolts, uh, the ufologists, many of whom are more nuts than both, I fear. <laughs> uh, but uh, they uh, disparage the paranormal, and they just want to study UFOs in the air or uh, landing or attempting to land and so forth, and they don't like it when the paranormal aspect comes into it. However, there's just a uh, continuum, I think, between uh, paranormal things that happen uh, in your living room even or wherever. Uh, things that uh, defy explanation uh, as far as our knowledge at this particular time is concerned. And uh, I think there's a whole realm there, one part of which is uh, flying saucers as seen in the air. Where it really gets complicated is with the abductees, and there's no easy answer to that at all. I, I've talked to just recently, uh, I was quite impressed with an abductee that I had a long conversation with out at a convention in, in California. And this woman had been abducted uh, regularly since the age of three, and she thought perhaps even earlier than that, but she couldn't remember it. 
And she didn't call herself an abductee because she said, I always went willingly. And uh, all her life, these incidents, which I didn't discuss in detail with her, have, have gone on. And no one has seen it except her. She can be in bed with her husband, and he sees nothing, but she does. And she just considers, considers it part of her life cycle, so to speak. And uh, she's not afraid of it, and she's not enlightened by it. She hasn't uh, changed uh, her way of life because of it. And actually talking to her at some length, she seemed just as normal as somebody else, except for this facet in her life. Now, how do you deal with situations like that, and what is the answer? And I have no idea. Well, let's move into that. Now, what about the people who run around telling us that they're hypnotizing these abductees, such as Bud Hopkins or yeah. Whitley Strieber? Well, what about them? They, uh, I only What's know about hypnosis that it makes you more susceptible to a suggestion and something that may be a, a dream or a fantasy become real or indeed perhaps it is real or has some kind of reality that we don't understand, some degree of reality. I don't think any of these abductions are absolutely physical so that somebody else is going to be watching and see it happen. When that uh, famous case of Linda Napolitano occurred uh, a number of years ago where she was supposedly uh, drifted out of the uh, window of her high-rise right in New York City. And uh, I don't have the feeling that anybody else would have seen that. It was apparently real to her, but eventually, after much hesitation of a period of months, I believe, uh, Bud Hawkins, the guy investigating it, finally bothered to... Uh, talk to other residents of the high-rise to see if they had noticed anything unusual that, that night. There were supposedly bright lights involved and all kinds of weird uh, things, and uh, nobody else in the building uh, was aware of it. If I recall right, uh, her husband wasn't aware of it. I'm not sure just exactly where he was at that moment, but she had two children. I don't think any of them are there as witnesses. It's just something that she claims happened to her. So what are you going to do about it? It's either made up or it's uh, not a physical thing. Well, but perhaps there's some gray area in between that. Perhaps we're talking oh, about... Oh, that's what it is. It's a gray right, area. Right. I mean, when you describe a phenomenon where there is no physical evidence and no direct uh, witness... We do know that the human mind is capable of so much, certainly oh, yeah. as a projecting. Uh, one has to assume some some number of these occurrences are clearly psychological, though maybe not all of them. Well, again, yes, uh, we don't uh, totally understand psychology, and the line between real and unreal is very blurry, as you just indicated. Yes. And uh, somewhere in there is this uh, phenomenon, and we simply don't understand it. And uh, these uh, abduction gurus have a lot to say, but I don't think they understand it either. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're hypnotic sessions or feeding the fantasies, if there are fantasies involved? Yeah, well, as I just said, um, you are more apt to think of something as uh, real after uh, hypnosis than uh, before. It, it, it solidifies the notion that it happened in, on a totally physical level, and uh, that certainly may not be the case. Makes it only worse rather than better. In some cases, it may uh, make these uh, abductees worse. I, <laughs> I don't uh, really believe that these uh, abduction researchers are primarily uh, concerned about the mental and physical well-being of their patients. Uh, 
they're more interested in uh, uh, writing books and uh, getting uh, attention from the work they're doing. Has there been any body of research that involves hypnosis that's not the situation where the hypnotist is also a writer writing a book about this? Maybe something like a more objective scientific hypnotic study? I really wouldn't know that. I, I don't know that much about hypnosis or, or whether certainly uh, these studies should be made by the scientists who are more objective than these uh, abduction researchers. I mean, uh, Hopkins in particular is uh, uh, sort of an enemy of mine in, in the field. Uh, he has no formal training in any science, and, and uh, I don't know if hypnosis is considered a science, but he's self-taught in, in all this. and. Uh, has in some cases become uh, romantically involved with some of his subjects when here. I, I don't see that that is increasing our knowledge. There must be better ways. There must be better people that can do uh, studies that are going to be more objective and have more meaning. First, we have to tell our listeners, you've entered the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Mosley. He's the editor of something called Saucer Smear, which is an eight-page newsletter. comes out occasionally. Now, I have to tell you, Why folks, did I give the address? Well, as a matter of fact, I was going to lead you to that direction. Well, Just, you can lead me. Um, but this, it's a question of whether you follow. But let me explain, first of all, that Jim still puts this newsletter together with an old-fashioned electric typewriter. Jim is somewhat anti-technology. Okay, well, to... I'm not anti. Why? I just don't have the skill for it, and I don't want to spend a lot of money on technology that I'm going to have a great deal of difficulty mastering, and I don't have other people surrounding me who would help me do that, and for many reasons. I just haven't uh, gotten into it, and I don't expect it. Right. You don't even have an answering machine on your phone. No, I don't, because I figure uh, people will call back if they're interested, and if not, it can't be that important. And you have no cell phone. I have no cell phone. And I'm you have no... Most of the, I'm home most of the time, and uh, the only uh, case in which I can think that I might need a cell phone is if I'm in my car and have some emergency. That might be helpful, but I don't think it's worth all that money just for the possibility of something like that happening. And you have no computer. No, no computer. Right. Well, I but just now, Jim, the, your newsletters can be read on the Internet. Who's putting that oh, out? Oh, I know. Yeah, you know, I gave a fellow years ago permission to put them on the Internet. Yes, but for those who want to get the editions immediately, as soon as they're out, before someone has a chance to copy them onto the Internet, how do they get a copy, Jim? Yeah, well, there's a delay there. The man does it voluntarily, uh just for his own interest, I suppose, and sometimes it's a couple of weeks or even a month or two before he gets around to putting it on. Uh, obviously, the news in a monthly magazine is not hot off the press anyhow, but you would read it somewhat sooner if you got the printed version. Uh, however, if you get the printed version, I would hope that people would send some kind of a donation in to cover the cost that I have in, in, in putting this out. And to get to the point uh, for the printed version, the address is uh, Saucer Smear, P.O. Box 
1709 Key West, Florida 33041. And would you repeat that one more time before we go on? I want to I'll give you a full chance you. here. Yes, Saucer Smear, P.O. Box 1709 Key West, two words, Key West, Florida 33041. And you definitely survived that last hurricane. I was worried about you. It would appear so, yes. Uh, unless you're talking to us from another plane of existence right now. Yes, that's not likely. You sound definitively terrestrial. Yes, I try to say uh, 3D as much as possible. <laughs> Let's move on with the saga of saucers. And I'm going to mention a couple of people that people know about by virtue of what they've done and give your reaction. John Keel. Of course, we know John Keel because of the three men in black, because the, it was created by him in a sense, although he wasn't the originator of the term three men in black, but he made it more popular than almost anyone else. They made a comic book of it, a movie from the comic book, and the characters in the movie are identified as J and K, which stands for John Keel. He wrote the book The Mothman Prophecies, which was made into a fictionalized film. So John yeah. Keel has some degree of fame. Where does he stand in your point of view? Well, Keel and I have never gotten along uh, very well. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, uh, my recollection is that our troubles started back in a convention that I hosted in New York City in 1967, and we wanted to surprise Keel by giving him the Ufologist of the Year Award. And so as he started his speech at that convention, I came up and interrupted him with this uh, award, which involved uh, reading a short a preamble before handing it to him. And uh, it threw him off uh, pretty much, and he was uh, flabbergasted and not particularly pleased. And uh, things like that have happened between us over the years. I found after a while that trying to please him was no uh, worthwhile objective, so I stopped doing it. And uh, we have not corresponded for quite a while, a number of years, but before that I knew him fairly well. I met him a great number of times. And uh, I, I think he's fanciful and uh, has personality problems that uh, I needn't necessarily go into, but uh, certainly He's added a great deal to what we call saucer lore. Okay, lore, but any truth to it? Any truth to oh, anything well, yeah, he's talking about? Well, I mean, the uh, Morseman thing uh, has, uh, I suppose, something to it, and he went down and investigated it. It would have existed as a phenomenon whether he went or not, but he did go and he wrote it up and... Uh, there must be something there. I have no idea what it is. What about the three men in black, which is a legend of people coming to your door and saying, hey, stop talking about that thing well, you saw uh, in the, the sky. the three men in black, uh, you, you credit Keel too much for that. That starts with Gray Barker. I know, yes. starts uh, with the Albert K. Bender case. And that was this uh, relatively young man in Bridgeport, Connecticut, who in 1952 started the first Saucer magazine, I would think, although you can argue about that, but it's the one that gets the credit for being the first. And I think it was called Space Review. And he put out a few quarterly issues starting in 52, and then in 53, which just about the time I got into the field, he put out a last issue with an ominous warning in it that basically that he had learned the secret of the saucers, but he had been visited in his apartment in uh, Bridgeport by three entities, and I, I'm not quite clear yet whether they were human or floating entities that uh, didn't quite reach the floor as they floated, in which case they would not be human. 
But whoever they were, they uh, told him uh, this information that he could not reveal, and uh, then he stopped printing his magazine and got out of the field. He, he did come back once or twice. Uh, he gave a couple of lectures for our group in, in New York City, and he finally, a few years later, with the help of Gray Barker, wrote a book, which I think it's called Flying Saucers and the Three Men, if I remember correctly. Yes, I think I recall that title. And, and that had to do with what I would consider nonsense of these uh, entities that were coming from another planet, uh, landing in the polar regions, trying to get some kind of uh, minerals that were not available on their planet or were running out. I mean, that is childish science fiction at its worst, and I never really uh, took it very seriously. Well, you know, you did mention, of course, Gray Barker, who people in the UFO field would credit with bringing the three men in black to light. I was thinking in terms of the wider public and wider audience, because Keel took over the men in black lore, and he extended it way beyond Albert Bender. So, Jim, in all of these years of you looking at these uh, situations and trying to get a better understanding... Has there been one episode in particular that stands out in your mind as being something that could not be easily explained away by any of the many explanations that tend to be deployed for this stuff? Is there one case for you that really represents the, the, the notion of the fact that we don't really know what's going on? Well, I can hardly bring it down to one case, but just off the top of my head, there was this uh, Australian case of a, of a uh, private pilot named uh, Valencheck, who uh, somewhere off the coast of Australia was flying his plane alone, and uh, he got in contact with the nearest uh, field, uh, telling them about the fact that he had these uh, UFOs, uh, or at least one in particular, eventually, that was uh, uh, following him and, and upsetting him and making his flight uh, pattern change and so forth. And uh, in I have the whole transcript here, but I won't bother to get it out of the other room. It's fascinating. Uh, in the end, uh, he broke off transmission, and the interesting thing is, this is around 1980, as I said, neither he nor his plane were ever found. And you can think of different things. Uh, maybe he uh, wanted to commit suicide in an interesting way. Maybe he wanted to disappear from uh, his uh, environment and start a new life somewhere else. And if any of that is true, it's never come to light in all these years since then. And uh, it's an absolutely unexplained disappearance relating to what he claimed was a UFO, uh, which he was watching at the time that he stopped transmitting. Okay, so that's something that you feel yeah, to this I mean, day is uh, not that any kind is, of an is, adequate is, explanation. Yeah, I, I don't know what we could say that would solve that, and, you know, there's a lot there that are difficult to solve. Jim, one more time yes. before we let you disappear into the yes, ether, yes. or before you take either, depending on our point of view. And that is, would you give the address one more time of how one gets a copy of Saucer Smear? Yes, if you want the print version, rather than the Internet version, you may write to me at the Saucer Smear, that's M-E-A-R, PO Box 1709, Key West, Florida 33041. Jim, thank you very much. By the way, folks, give Jim a donation, okay? You know. Oh, absolutely. Pay yes, for his uh, pay for his typewriter, pay for the ink, pay for the ribbon or use ribbons on your pay, pay for the scotch, uh, 
the scotch that I drink while I'm uh, writing it, you know, all these things have to be covered. Seriously, thank you very much well, for joining uh, us. And uh, by the way, folks, if you happen to pay a visit to Amazon Books or your local bookstore, look for a book called Shockingly Close to the Truth, which basically tells a lot of Jim Mosley's story through the years. And and the subtitle, Confessions of a Grave Robbing Ufology. Which would be That's another discussion. The book. <laughs> and that would be another discussion. Thank you, Jim. All Thank right. you, Jim. Now that was an interesting guy. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, he he. Now you see the thing is, and and this is what I've always found fascinating about the UFO phenomenon, is that we end up talking so much about personalities, and I think that's all good and fine because you know we're people discussing topics that are are of interest to people. You know, I keep wanting to talk about science, Gene. You know, let's talk about. You know, forget the personality issues involved. This is something I found, you know, kind of whack. It, it kind of mirrors what goes on in the computer industry, where people focus on things like the personalities involved in the technologies and not the technologies themselves. This guy's written a lot of stuff. He's obviously thought about this topic for a long time. I, I wish there were some more concrete answers about things. I one of the things we need to do on the show, Gene, is we need to try to separate belief from fact. And and Mosley's a fun guy. I, we have we definitely have to talk to him again in the future because I want to get some more facts out of him. Speaking right. of core sets of belief, another fellow who got involved in UFOs and psychic phenomena early on was Brad Steiger. Now Brad Steiger is totally the opposite of Jim Mosley in many ways. He grew up in the farm community in Iowa, whereas Jim Mosley was the son of actually the Major General George Van Horn Mosley, who was an assistant deputy commissioner of the Army or something like that during World War II. So he came out of this military-industrial complex family, and he was the beatnik of the time, the hippie, whatever. Brad Steiger, as I said, is like the Midwestern farm He came boy. off the farm, yeah. Yes, he did. <laughs> but also extremely well-educated, extremely informed. And a lot of us Mac writers who have written 20, 30, 40 books like myself, David Pogue, and of course, Bob Levitas, going to be jealous of Brad Steiger. He's written over 160 books. There's a lot of books. <laughs> this is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebT. TV.net. It's all out of this world. So, Brad, when did you first become interested in UFOs? Well, I began an interest when the first books were coming out by uh, a fellow Iowan who was also in charge of NICAP. 
the behind the flying saucers, and it was quite embarrassing. And and my first foray into UFOs ended with embarrassment, as I said, because I was trying to tell my dad about space, UFOs, and how the aliens were coming. And that night, the cattle got out and were running through the cornfield, which is the dread of every farmer. So there we were at night with the evening dew, soaking wet, getting cut by corn leaves. And suddenly I looked up, and there there was a disc swooping low, swooping above us. And I looked at it, my eyes bugged, and I said, Dad, Dad, there, right there is a flying saucer, is a UFO. And he said, oh, come on, there's a cloud bank, and that's the bottom of the searchlight from the airport in Fort Dodge. Now get busy and chase the cattle, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, what a start. What a start. I'll tell you how I start in just a second, but tell you this is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We welcome Brad Steiger, who has written more books than anybody could possibly imagine. What is it up to, 160, 170 now or something? Yeah, you're right, Gene, 164. 164, 22 books on UFOs. And does that mean that Brad is really 300 years old? Yes, yes it is. My secret has been discovered. Uh No, actually, uh, you could probably figure that out, too, as long as we've known each other. I'll be 70 in February. Okay. So not quite, but but, I mean, those are Earth years, of course. Of course, but uh, how old were you when you first started writing books? 20, 20. So basically three and a half books a year, you got it. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically it, my friend. I've only written about 32 books, I'm sorry. Well, you'll catch up. No. You'll catch up. I know. I know your resolve, and I know your energy. Well, at least you do. I don't. David, how many have you written? (laughs) Well, I've only written three, but I think I have a few more in me. Okay, Dave. You catch up. (laughs) Okay, so I discovered... Well, well, then, after that, I still, you know, I was embarrassed. But I wasn't dissuaded at all, so I continued my, my research and my reading. But then, of course, graduating from high school, going on to college, but still keeping an interest, buying Fate magazine and, and buying uh, whatever I could on the subject, continuing to read it. And then I kind of set it aside for psychical research and exploring, going to mediums, going to spiritualist camps, going to allegedly haunted houses and so forth. So it wasn't until 1966 when I was assigned to do a book on UFOs. At that time, I thought, well, I'd kind of decided the only people who saw UFOs were those who howled at the moon on Saturday night after they'd been celebrating with an idea of doing the book. And then I became convinced all over again that the phenomena is real. So basically, your father dissuaded you. Yeah, but this has a wonderful closure to it. Several years later, there was a farmer on the other side of the state who said, called me and said, we can see UFOs every night, and they come at the same time, and we know this is not the male plane. We know it's not any natural phenomena. They're just there, and then they circle around, we think, around the whole globe, and then they come back again. So I said, well, 
I want to see that. And I said, well, it's so regular, you can set your watch by it. And I said, well, fine, I want to set my watch. I had to go through my hometown to reach that part of the state. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, do you want to come along and see the UFOs? And he said, sure. Well, they did come that night, guys, just as the farmer said. And it was interesting because first we saw a mail plane, you know, light way in the distance and cat closer and closer and the sound got louder and louder and then replicated and reversed the process as it went the other way. And that's how things come and go in our dimension. When the UFOs came, they were bang. They were just there. They were just there above us. They hovered for a while and then at an enormous rate of speed, they took off and then probably in 45 minutes they came back again. And my dad had a pair of binoculars, and I was afraid he was going to have black eyes the way he rammed those in. And then he said to me on the way home, he had always kind of believed in UFOs. He was putting you on. Well, I've got a question then. If you have the situation where you have these sightings that seem to happen with such consistency, repeatability, I mean, it begs the question, rather obvious question, why isn't there a ton more of really reliable, clear photographic evidence? Boy, that that is, I suppose, one of the basic questions, and certainly the basic questions that the skeptics ask. What happened to the farm family? Gene, you're, you're familiar with this situation. Yes, I think I know what you're getting at. Yeah, they began to have contact. They began to communicate. They began to have severe poltergeistic phenomena. What does that mean to the person who's not educated in that stuff? It seems to be a pattern that follows who knows what. But I've been trying to determine that pattern ever since. It doesn't happen to everyone who has a low overflight of UFOs, but it happens to so many. Is that following then, there's poltergeistic experience. Now, by poltergeist, we mean violent phenomena, poltergeist, psychokinetic phenomena, mind over matter phenomena, where furniture moves around the womb, beds overturn when the people are in them, a continual run of phenomena. Then they had the men in black. They had, and and this was quite interesting, but it's a variation that, you know, those of us who research are, are familiar with. The kids were taken out of school by someone who claimed that he was from the State Board of Education investigating special children, children with special gifts. And he called the two farm children out into an office and then began to ask them all about UFOs and Hmm. space and buck rogers and flash gordon and things the kids didn't really know about but just anything that would get them to talk about space well there was something about him that the superintendent he didn't seem quite right he didn't believe he came from the state board and he put in a call and they said there was no such person as this name was given on the staff they didn't have any idea who he was So the superintendent came rushing into the room to, you know, demand to know who the man was, and the two kids were sitting there by themselves. The man was gone. That was fast. And then later the children claimed that they saw the man watching them while they went out for recess. And then it continued. Then the adults began to have communication. This is the men in black, Brad? Yeah, they, they did see the men in black. Let me let me backtrack on this because a lot of our listeners, the only familiarity they have with the Men in Black is the movie. Yeah, the cartoon. Or, the cartoon or the two movies that came out with, of course, uh, Tommy Lee well, Jones I was and Will Smith. Well, calling the movie a cartoon. 
kind of a live-action cartoon. Okay, so they know J and K, but they don't know about real men in black. So maybe before we continue with the story, define what the men in black means in the UFO enigma. To the UFO enigma, from the very beginning, there have appeared, for some sightings, not for all now, uh, because you remember the time when paranoia just gripped the whole field. But they appear sometimes in Air Force uniforms, or what seem to be, or black clothing. They very often wear sunglasses, and they approach the witness. Now, if the witness took a picture, they demand the picture. If he found something, some kind of debris, they demand that. And they say they must turn it over for the good of their country, the good of their world, the good of their universe. Sometimes they threaten. Some have claimed that they've even punched them, that there have been other wounds. Not, I'm not talking about bloody wounds. I'm talking about bruises and so forth. Now, they, this family, they had one of the most extraordinary men in black experiences that I've heard, Gene and Dave. One of the men had to do some business in, in another state, and he went to the local airport, and son of a gun, he saw those same, in this case, two men in black, that he had caught hanging around their farm after the children had complained of this investigator. He became uneasy. He got on the plane. They got on the plane. The plane took off. He's turning around, looking at them every once in a while, and they're seated just a couple seats behind him. Very uneasy. What are they going to do? Then, about midway in the flight, there was like a bump, like the plane hit an air pocket. And then there was a terrible smell that permeated the entire plane and people were gagging and coughing and he turned around and the seats where the men were were empty he went to the bathroom he checked everything after the plane landed he waited in the airport for over 45 50 minutes to see where they could have got off where they might have been they weren't there they had vanished mid-flight oh boy there was a two-seater two Mm -hmm. seats on each side it was a small plane Mm -hmm. and of course Some of the people said they saw them, some of them didn't. They just were there. He saw them, he saw them get on, and they they didn't get off. Or at least, not in the normal way. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. Not in the normal way. Well, we're exploring that which isn't always normal. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're proud to introduce an old friend of mine. We're not talking in years. He's still very young in years. Brad Steiger, author of over 164 books on UFOs, the paranormal, etc., etc., and thousands of magazine articles and lots of other stuff. So he's been doing this for well over half a century. And he has a wealth of experiences. Now, this men in black thing, the real men in black as opposed to the real men in black, the ones you see in that film. Now, do you think they're from the government? Do you think they're, they are E.T. representatives? What is your reaction to this? Boy, at first, I thought they were from the government because everyone else did. <laughs> then, and I had some friends who had experiences where they claimed they were from the government. One friend was completely shattered by the experience and drove a couple hundred miles to to see me late at night because he had taken pictures of UFOs. And they burst into his motel room and demanded the pictures. 
they claimed they were from the Air Force, but they gave the same rap for the good of your country, for the good of your world, for the good of your universe. And and he was really frightened by it. And he, he was really a, you know, tough, tough little guy, so he wouldn't normally be. And he had been in, a, as a professional photographer, he had been threatened lots of times. So, But this really got to him. Then I'm quite certain, and I've said this from the platform when those days of yore, that NICAP members, especially earnest teenagers, would approach people and say, we want that evidence. We are from Washington, D.C., which is where the NICAP headquarters were located. And I think then they just allowed, and sometimes maybe they even suggested they were with the government. Because when I would check on this, you know, the the men in black didn't quite fit the usual description of being kind of uh, less than medium height, dark complexion, dark suit. These were kind of uh, mostly tall, gangly, pimply teenagers. It's <laughs> 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 for your good, it's for your country. So I kind of angered NICAP in those days because I, I was quite vocal because I tracked the number down. Well, you know, NICAP was, in those days, the premier UFO investigative group. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was headed by a guy named Major Donald Kehoe. Right. Who's no longer with us. Kehoe, as I said, excuse me, I guess I forgot to mention the name. He's the fellow Iowan. He came from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Right. And and, uh, he wrote the first books that turned me on. Well, it's very interesting about Major Kehoe and NICAP. NICAP had its offices on Connecticut Avenue. Now, those of you who remember the classic science fiction movie, Day the Earth Stood Still, right. there's a scene where Klaatu, played by Michael Rennie, is shot down in the middle of rush hour traffic. And where he is shot down is near DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., very close to where NICAP had its headquarters later on. Uh-huh. Isn't that strange? Yeah, that's a, that's a great bit of trivia, Gene. Very, so uh-huh. trivial, I don't know. Sure, they they use that too. <laughs> At any rate, now I uh, have concluded that because the man in black phenomena still continues, and I, I don't know, I've I've had trouble with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, even though for a time I swore allegiance to it, really from the very beginning, because my first book, and as you remember, it came out perfect timing, Strangers from the Skies. Mm-hmm. It came out right after Heineck had said it's swamp gas. Everyone was talking about UFOs, and, of course, it went on the paperback bestseller list in two weeks. So that uh, was a tremendous encouragement for me to continue writing and exploring the UFO mystery. But from the very beginning, when I began kind of focusing on the contactees, not the ones that were having uh, dog and pony shows and making a carnival out of their contact, but the quiet, the silent contactees who claimed experiences. And I thought then, this is just like going to Lilydale. This is just like going to a spiritualist camp and hear them talking about their guides. So I, almost from the beginning, felt that there was a lot more paraphysical phenomena occurring. There is a lot more spiritual or psychic phenomena going on. David, you're about to say something. We cut you off. Well, here's the thing. Given what I know about the history of UFO activity, it seems like major UFO flaps seem to follow in the wake of large societal upheavals. And probably the best example of that is the modern UFO wave, which started in the mid-40s, came right on the heels of the resolution of World War II. That's when we started seeing a lot of the major flap stuff happening in the United States as well as Europe. 
So I wonder, you know, given what happened in our country on 9-11 of 2001, um, we haven't seen any kind of a corresponding UFO flap that kind of echoes that major societal event in American history. I'm wondering why that's the case. And, and the other thing that kind of ties into that is this idea that the federal government is keeping all these secrets on UFO activity locked up in labs somewhere. I mean, given what we're seeing recently as, you know, major incompetence coming out of Washington, not that this is surprising many of us, but, you know, there's just this complete lack of an ability of really keeping meaningful secrets. How is there a possibility that if, you know, there have been these major revelations with UFO stuff and if they've got captured vehicles and so forth, you know, um, how is it possible that the federal government could possibly keep this stuff under wraps? They don't seem able to keep the most mundane stuff secret or even vaguely confidential. How could they cover up such a thing, a thing so big as UFOs? I'm, I'm just wondering, Mr. Steiger, what's your thoughts about that? Well, I, I agree. I agree. And, and plus... Uh, from, from the beginning when I really became known, and, and it's interesting how, you know, I was on a radio show not terribly long ago, and the person said, well, Brad Steiger, ufologist, I know you specialized in UFOs. Well, I have a broad brush, and I, I didn't correct them because, you know, uh, I certainly have a broad brush in the paranormal and other subjects, but at any rate, many people think of me as a ufologist, and there's there's nothing wrong with that, as Seinfeld might say. I, I feel because I have had so many friends in government, in the Air Force, and especially in the very beginning, uh, my closest allies were former pilots, uh, Air Force pilots, excuse me, who had been in Korea, who had been in Vietnam, who had encountered UFOs in the air. Um, my cousin was one of the first, uh, well, he was, it's in the aviation books. He was the first man to shoot down a jet. He sat, shot down a, a Nazi jet. He was a, flew P-51s out of uh, England. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I'll tell you what, let me stop that and just tell everybody this is the Paracast. First episode with Brad Steiger joining us on this evening's episode. Brad is the author of over 164 books. It would be a misnomer to call him a ufologist, although he covers UFOs, he covers the paranormal in general, the things that go bump in the night or during the day or anything else. And now let's proceed with what you were going to talk about. What I was going to say is that these UFOs, these objects, these Foo Fighters, these lights in the skies, and, and we know that at that time, my cousin who encountered them, the tail gunners and so forth who encountered them, uh, had an uncle who was a tail gunner. They thought they were a Nazi secret weapon. And we know that the Nazis were, Nazi scientists were on the verge of launching such a craft. Whether it's anti-gravity, I, I think, is the inference we have now. But what they were working with at that time was jet-powered. They, they were working with circular craft, and the plans for this were taken back to the de Havilland base in Canada, where they did make it fly for a little bit, but it was decided to be impractical. Operation Paperclip, several other uh, plans, and different secret groups after World War II worked with the Air Force, worked with the Canadian government, 
and did did explore the idea. Uh, they had plans, the uh, U.S. Air Force had plans for something that would just accelerate at an enormous rate of speed and uh, reach uh, 10 miles in no time at all and then take off. But as far as we know, these were not built except for some archetype or, or preliminary models. And I had a friend then who worked at de Havilland who said that they did make it fly just for a little bit, but then all these plans, as far as we know... <laughs> were disbanded. Now, as far as the government keeping secrets, uh, we know that um, there were several MK Ultra and so forth groups that have kept some very solid secrets that were, but now they're starting to ease out. I have uh, friends who were in the Pentagon who, you know, were kind of double agents because they believed in UFOs, who searched as they swore to me every closet where anything about UFOs could have been hidden, and they found nothing. So as I said before, the government doesn't know what to do with the UFO mystery any more than the average person on the street. And I think that, again, the cover-up situation did exist. Some people have been making a very good living out of uh, claiming a UFO cover-up. And maybe that maybe there is one. But, Dave, I, I kind of agree with you that it, it would have come out by now. And, of course, we have a number of people who claim they were in the government, who claim they worked on UFOs, and, and they seem to have been discredited now. Yeah. The Bob Lazars of the world, the John Lears yeah. of the world, uh, the uh, Coopers of the world w with all their claims. And, uh, I, you know, I know these people. I like them personally. And, and uh, Cooper, uh, we lectured together on, on many occasions. They're, they're nice guys. And, and I, I have no reason. I, I would never call anyone a liar. That's just not my style. But I have found that people can believe things. You know, when, when we're out investigating and someone has a wild story uh, that just can't be true. You can't call him a liar because that's true for him. Doing serious research in this field is very, very difficult because it, but it does, all these things to me boil down to individual mystical experiences. So if someone has a vision, someone has a dream, you can't call him a liar, but then you can't say his dream is real for other people. It's individual reality, not consensual reality. I think a big part of the problem is that we really, as a society, we, we, we seem to be confused about the difference between belief and science. So, you know, people want to believe certain things that they have no scientific evidence for. I mean, like intelligent design, that's probably a great example of this phenomenon in our society where facts don't seem to matter as much as what people believe. And, and this is a terrible thing because in the case of UFOs, I think what a lot of people, a lot of us really want is we want science to intervene here. We want facts to be the predominant yardstick for figuring out what the heck is really happening. We don't know what's happening. Something weird seems to be happening. We're not sure what it is, but we'd like some hard scientific evidence. And I'll give you an example of this, Brad. I mean, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been this huge flap of UFO activity in Mexico City. It's been very well documented down there by a group working at the University of Mexico, uh, El Grupo Sol, the, the, the Sun Group. And um, there's a predominant Mexican journalist who's involved with this as well. They've got 
But apparently they have, from what I hear, a ton of, of video and photographic evidence. Hundreds of hours of very clear daylight stuff. Um, you know, I mean, it's not physical evidence in terms of it's not a piece of a, of, of a, of a craft, but there seems to be, they seem to have possession of a good amount of photographic and video evidence. Why aren't we hearing anything about this in, even in the major UFO media? I mean, not that there is major UFO media, but, you know, we don't really hear about this stuff. Why is that, Brad? I, I think you, you summed it up very well. Uh, we desperately want in our technological age, science and religion to blend well for some people there's no problem i believe in a god i believe in evolution i believe that people were inspired to discover evolution that's one point of view and we can apply that to the ufo but to me the ufo has always been with its projection it's it, i think that there are visitors but if they are visitors in the sense we think of normally as human beings we don't let's not say they're angels because you certainly could let's not say they're demons because you certainly could but let's say they are visitors from another reality i think it has to be from another dimension another dimension we talk about our three-dimensional reality we suggest four well let's say there are there are actual visitors in, in a fifth dimension. They could come and go at will. We wouldn't see them unless they wanted us to see them. So I think the, the, the footage you're referring to in Mexico, um, again, not being critical, but the element of belief kind of has to enter into it with some of those pictures. And some of the pictures, I think, people have become enthusiastic because if you look at them closely, well, I mean, that could have been mocked up. But even the ones I've seen that are really great. Now, we've seen UFOs come at demand by some people. I mean, truly, Trump and say, I can make a UFO appear, and they do. Now, what is that? When we were in Peru, a shaman led us to at, at nighttime, so we couldn't find it again, even if we, even if we knew Peru. But we were taken up in, in the Andes into a lake in the Andes, and, and it wasn't Titicaca, the, the lake we all love to say. This was another smaller lake, and we saw these great balls of light, these huge balls of light coming and going from this lake. Now, the interesting thing is that people said these are UFOs, these are UFOs. Well, if that suggests aliens from another world, I just couldn't go with it because Sherry, my wife, started talking to them and said, well, now go to the left. And they went to the left. Now go up. Now go down. Now make a tr make a quick uh, pyramid shape. And it, it'll, not I won't say obeyed, but it complied. Now, I can't believe that someone came from billions and billions of miles away to come and interact with my wife's thought processes. This has to be, this has to be some kind of natural phenomena that has always been with us. This has to border on the mystical, this has to border on the paranormal, this has to border on the multidimensional. But you're right, we insist on making, just like, you know, intelligent design. That sounds so nice. I like that intelligent design. But that's just another way of saying God. That's just another way of saying the divine creator. So what's the problem? I mean, even the Pope has come out and said, enough already, you know. There's evolution. We, as Christians, we view that. As religionists, we view that. I mean, we have to look at several paradigms that can coexist without really causing friction. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandney. 
Hey, let me just tell everybody that this is the PowerCast. We have Brad Steiger, author of 164 books about the paranormal, including UFOs, which is the main focus, but we're getting into an area about UFOs that you folks have probably not heard before. And that's what we're discussing now. Let me maybe throw in one point here. We have all these star systems, billions of stars. We're starting to discover planets around those stars. Now, is there an ET? Are we alone in the universe? Is that a separate issue entirely? Gene, I've, I've come to see it as a separate issue entirely. And I will say, first of all, that I believe there's intelligent life in the universe. I believe that life is everywhere present in the universe. It might be on the bacteria level where we started, as we started, but I believe in all these millions of planets there has to be life. And it may not look at all like us, but it's life and it's intelligent life. I believe the UFO phenomena is real. I mean, it is very real. And as you know, several years ago for one of our colleagues' magazines, he asked me, Tim Beckley asked me for why single theory of UFOs. He was, I guess, making a survey of researchers. And I said, Tim, I can't do it, but I'll give you 17 UFO theories. And, and I think all of them can apply. I think this is, I think it's a part, you know, and this sounds extreme, but Sherry and I believe it, that it, it affects all levels of our society, culture, spiritual beliefs. Somehow the UFO mystery will tell us more about who we really are. And you can apply that to spiritual, physical, mental, emotional. I don't think the, the question of intelligent life in the universe and the UFO mystery are necessarily uh, allied at all. I think that the idea that there's balance between the separation of ideas of, you know, the UFO phenomenon on one side and the existence of intelligence life in the rest of the universe on the other side, it's always occurred to me that one of the ultimate expressions of human vanity is this idea that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. I mean, that's just so incredibly human-centric and uh, most likely so unbelievably untrue. Um, I'd like to believe that the variety of life on earth really reflects the diversity of life that probably probably exists in the universe but you know brad i've been reading some of your writings on the web and one of the things i like about your approach is that you accept this possibility of the effect of the human psyche on our interpretation of all this stuff i mean it's amazing what the human mind can will into existence whenever i go down to new york city and i look around these huge buildings and i think my God, you know, people's will put these things here. A lot of effort, but, you know, really a projection of the mind is what's created this reality. And I, I appreciate the fact that you accept this possibility that, you know, the human psyche, our imaginations, have some role in defining how we perceive these things that we call UFOs and um, that perhaps they're not all about external manifestations. Perhaps some of this phenomenon is coming from inside our own minds. You know, I got onto that very, very early when I went out into the field and began investigating those who claimed to have seen a UFO on the ground and claimed to have seen a being outside of the UFO. And of course, like all good investigators, we would take the individuals separate from one another and hear their stories. Well, someone 
they had the same sighting, all right? So one would describe it saying, oh, you know, it's the little man. It's a little green man, okay? Next one would say, oh, my God, it was like something from a science. I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible. And then the third would say, ah, oh, it was a beautiful being of light. Talk to me of peace, love, and understanding. Now, they all saw the same sighting, but they didn't see the same sighting at all. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a theory that who you are is what you get. And your level of apprehension of foreign or extraterrestrial or alien life depends upon your preconceptions or what you can best handle. So I think the UFO intelligences could be like Trevor James Constable's sky things. They could be blobs of pure intelligence. But when they come down to our level, and I don't mean that in the spirit of denigration, but when they come down to our level, our dimension, they appear in a way that the person would best understand. I might like to see a little elf. I might like to see an angel. And maybe if I am in this particular mood, I want to see some terrible alien-type monster that will give me a thrill and, and really make the story good when I tell it. So I think it depends a lot on the percipient. You know, it's very interesting. In the movie Contact, and Carl Sagan, we assume, is a pretty conservative guy, was a conservative guy. He didn't believe right. in UFOs as far as we know. But he writes this book, and then the movie version, I don't know how far the movie version and the book version differ. But the one thing I did recall is the fact that Jodie Foster's character perceived the alien as looking like her father because the alien wanted to appear in a way that she could accept. Exactly, exactly. And so many spiritual experiences, and you can imagine how many that we get every week by emails, have, you know, and we try it. Well, I don't think we try. I think we do accomplish being very patient and um, supportive of these individuals. But many is the UFO sightings that says their father or their uncle or their grandfather they saw on board. And that, to me, says the same thing. You know, I remember the old Ray Bradbury story, Mars is Heaven, where all the aliens look like deceased relatives of the individuals. Great story. Great story. Well, I hear these stories, and a lot of what you, you, a lot of the details start to sound like these shamanistic sort of spiritual journeys where people sort of turn inward and let their inner voices sort of start to take them over. It, it's fascinating that there's so much of that kind of imagery in this phenomenon. Of course, that's completely separate from the fact that there are other episodes where, you know, hundreds of people will view something. At that point, it's clearly... I mean, to my way of thinking, it's clearly not an inner manifestation. Then if you've got hundreds or even thousands of people witnessing something, well, then you've got something more objective. And it seems to me like those are the most interesting episodes, the ones where you have lots of people witnessing something. Then we have a pretty good idea that's not coming from someone's imagination, that that maybe is perhaps a real episode occurring in front of a number of people. But... Uh, you know, it's um, the large number, the mass sightings, and, and there have been a number of them, are lights in the sky, aren't they? Uh, I, I haven't heard of the, the New York sighting that uh, Sherry worked as uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek's uh, personal manager for, for quite some time. And she's very enthusiastic about the New York sighting because there were hundreds and hundreds of people who have seen it. But again, there were lights in the sky. 
Now, when people have the personal revelation, it is exactly that, a revelation. Now, you, uh, we mentioned shamans, and you just brought it up again, David. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, I'm sending emails back and forth with an Apache shaman who, again, claimed a UFO sighting when she was three years old, and that gave her her special gifts. So her question to me was, you know, do people get gifts when they have a sighting? And wow. many people claim that. Many people claim to develop telepathy and, and other gifts of intelligence and so forth. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me uh, take a gift from one of our sponsors and tell you this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're proud to present today Brad Steiger, author of over 164 books covering a variety of subjects. Brad, before I go into our final segment here, any recent books of note that you should tell us about? Well, I'm, I'm very pleased with my Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. It's a huge book, 600 pages, lots of illustrations, and been getting excellent reviews, which you can see on our website. And may I give our website? Please do. It's www.brad, B-R-A-D, and, spell out and, A-N-D, Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, dot com www.bradandsherry.com couldn't be easier we have a lot of information there about different books my wife and I are doing a miracle series for Adams and uh, that's been going very well and, and we're pleased with that because miracles are all around us indeed Indeed, it gets pretty crazy. So what do you tell the people who insist, despite everything that you've said on this show and elsewhere, that it's still E.T. coming here, that that's what UFOs have been all along and all this other stuff is just ridiculous? People have their expectations, and their expectations create their reality. David was talking about walking and seeing the great buildings in New York City. Gene, you know very well those great buildings. Now... We talk about quantum mechanics physics, and that's the new rage. But those buildings were built by Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics exists with Einsteinian physics, quantum mechanics physics. What we have to, I think, accept is that we have several paradigms that are operating at the same time, and they need not conflict. One of the things in the professors, there's two new books debunking the adoptee phenomena, which is fine. I think that is a spiritual experience as well, in my opinion. But the point I'm making is that they say, these people are so intelligent. These people are so normal, and yet they believe they were abducted. Well, I've heard, when I was teaching in college, I heard my fellow professors say, this student is so intelligent, has a mastery of physics and math, but he believes in God. How can you believe in God and be so scientifically astute? <laughs> so I think we have to say that <laughs> there are paradigms within paradigms, realities within realities. We choose our own, and that's just fine. So if they want to see little E.T. calling home, then at least they have some concept that we're not alone in the universe. Well, it's one way to look at it. By the way, I noticed another book that you have out from you and Art Bell, the yes. famous radio host called <laughs> The Source, the Journey Source. Through the Unexplained. Now, tell us about that book. That seems to cover well, quite a few things. That, 
when Art would interview me, he would start doing just as, as very much as we did. He would say, well, what about this, Brad? What about this ghost? And I would say, well, it could be as a result of uh, collective consciousness expressing itself. It could be that individual's psychic need. And then I'd go on and on. i say, or, you know, it could be one single source for all these phenomena. So that's where we got the title of the book, The Source, saying that, while there are many different games in town, there might be only one real game going on, kind of a reality game, or all from a single source that expresses itself in a wide variety of phenomena. You mentioned that your wife had worked with the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek, and as many mm-hmm. people remember, he's the guy who coined the term swamp gas. <laughs> right. And he, he was also... And to his credit, let's say, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Too. That's right. He, that's right. as a matter of fact, appeared in a very brief segment towards the end of the film watching yes, the did. alien craft land. And, and Sherry arranged for him to be in that little segment. Now, when I talked to Dr. Hynek in the last few years of his life, I talked to him several times, and I noticed that his belief about UFOs was moving away from nuts and bolts to embrace a much wider picture. Did that's you observe right. this? That's right. Uh, and I, I was going to mention that if we got in that area. Uh, he became very spiritual. Uh, Sherry was working with him on meditation, working with him on several areas, and he was beginning to embrace the multidimensional or the spiritual dimension of UFOs. I, I corresponded with a man who, you know, was knighted and was a uh, brilliant marine biologist in in Great Britain. And before he died, he set up a a soul research uh, area and uh, did some excellent work. But that came, you know, when he had retired. It it does for many people, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. They're they're caught up in the the nuts and bolts of their scientific existence. And then as they get older, they do get more contemplative. Some people see no problem from the beginning. And I've been one of those. I think my colleague Gene has been one of those who has never had any trouble combining several different points of view and seeing that they don't necessarily conflict. Well, that covers it. As a matter of fact, we're just about the end of our limited time with Brad Steiger, but we want him back in the future to cover a wider range of subjects. One more time, if you go to bradandsherry.com. Okay, bradandsherry.com, you will see, and that's Sherry with an S-H-E-R-R-Y. You'll get more information about what he's done, lots of different observations, opinions about different subjects, and about, of course, all the books he's written, or at least some of them, because there's so many. And we hope to have him back soon, and you'll also learn about all his latest titles there as well. Or if you go to Amazon Books and simply type in the word Brad Steiger. Mm-hmm. Stand back, because there's lots of reviews on Brad's books. Actually, lots of good information on his books. That's where I found out about lots of his stuff, so you can find them there on Amazon.com. Brad, thank you so much for introducing our audience to a very different way of exploring UFOs. Well, it was my honor, and it was my privilege, and I thank you very much for the invitation to express my views. <laughs> In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. If you send your comments to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, you can talk to us, tell us what you think. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, suggest Yeah, ask guests. us about weird stuff. I mean, you know, we, we, even though we're both 
really fascinated by all things weird. There's a lot of stuff probably under our radar, Gene. So, you know, if you guys know about stuff that's going on currently, uh, it's fascinating that we're talking about the history of this stuff, and that's all great. But I'd be very interested to have people who are maybe living outside of the country, maybe are experiencing things that we don't hear about in the United States. This show is originating in the U.S. Um, but the World Wide Web is just that. It's the World Wide Web gene. So if we have listeners in other countries that are keyed into stuff that perhaps we don't hear about, please email us. We'd love to... We'd love to get some of this out on the table to discuss it. Remember, you're in the Paracast. The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.